Welcome back. This is episode 37 of Herpetological Highlights. I'm Ben Marshall and co-hosting as always is Tom Major. What have we got for people this fortnight, Tom? Yeah, well, we're looking at African chameleons, aren't we? Uh, African chameleons. Yes. Which you're, you've, you've had a little bit more experience with than I have, to say the least, right? <laughs> yeah, a little, I've had a little bit of experience with African chameleons, yeah. And actually one of the species that we're going to be talking about was um, the focal species for my master's research. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, by f- I'm far from any kind of an expert in chameleons, but there was a time a few years ago when I read about them a lot and um, occasionally put them in unusual circumstances and watched how they reacted. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So what you're saying is you'll be able to answer a couple or a few chameleon-based questions. <laughs> ah, I love it when you spring a quiz on me after we're already recording, <laughs> <laughs> thus painting me into a corner. Yes. This is, this is part one of a two-part <laughs> lizard-based quiz. Part... The second part will come in two weeks' the time, humiliation which of... will be beefier and more intense. <laughs> the humiliation of Tom, part one. No, these, you'll be all right. You know chameleons. Okay, I look forward to it. When are we going to do it? Is that towards the end? Oh, no, we're doing it right now. <laughs> You're not escaping this. We've got a couple of questions now, and then I can I can save you one for a little bit later. Okay, let's do Although, it. Although, yeah. Okay, hit, hit me. So, by SVL, what is oh, the God. largest chameleon? You've oh. got a choice of two, because there was only a difference of a millimetre between these two species. Um... Uh, Ustalet's chameleon. Would that be Fusifer... Ustaleti, Us- yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's number two, 299 oh, SPL. I was off by a millimetre. Okay, wait a minute. Yeah. Um, so who's who's marginally larger? <laughs> oh. Um, oh, God. I can't remember it. I can't remember what it's called. It's, um... They've got one at Chester Zoo. Oh, the pressure's too great. <laughs> uh... No, go on, you're going to have to tell me. Uh, Columa Parsonai. Oh, so Parsons. Like Parsons chameleon, right? Damn, yeah. yeah. As if I remembered so Ustalets and not Parsons. One's way more obscure <laughs> than the other. Exactly, I was expecting Parsons yeah. straight away. Yeah, <laughs> just, Well, yeah, okay. I got the obscure one, but not the obvious one. I don't know what, so we can, whether I should take pride in that or not. I think I will, though. I'm happy with that. Oh, yeah. I, I think so. That's, yeah. So, uh, what about the smallest chameleon? Um, oh... Uh, God. I mean, oh, getting man. specific species here is going to be tough. I'm not, you know. But at the same time, if you think about it logically and make a guess, you could be all right. Um, well, I know it's one of the tiny little leaf chameleons. Okay. Hmm. Which their genus is? Is it? Uh, well, there's a couple, isn't there? Um, is it? Is it Ramfolian? No, it's the other one. <laughs> is it Repellian? Oh no! Then the other other one. Uh oh god! What's the other one called? Um, it also begins with R, doesn't it? Does it? Uh, it's got an R's the second layer. I'll give you that much. <laughs> oh my god! I mean, I'm getting, I can't. I don't know. Um, oh, it's it's Brachysia. Bri- oh wait, is it Stumpfly? Yeah. No, no, no. Oh. you overthink of it. Think of a word that just means small. <laughs> Micro. Micra. Ah, uh, so Brachysia micro. Yeah, yeah, I guess the nineteen point nine SPL, uh, or at least the biggest Brachysia micro, is was nineteen point nine SPL millimeters. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, 
That is insane. That is amazing. Yeah, well, that goes to show I don't know what's the biggest or smallest chameleon. You were pretty close. Pretty close. I didn't. can't believe that. I forgot Bukizia. Yeah, man. And here's another one. Just okay. a little, little general thing. Chameleons. Largely diurnal, right? Yeah. Using the data set that I've got, which, again, it might not be comprehensive for chameleons. I know it probably isn't. There's apparently one type of nocturnal chameleon. Can one you type. guess what it is? Yeah. Um, oh, okay. Because um, day- I didn't think... I thought that was just a straight rule that just none were nocturnal. So I don't know... So basically, I don't know, but if I was to hazard a guess, I would say it would be Camellio namaquensis. Uh, it's Fusifer rhinoceratus. Really? Which I believe is a... Fusifer's now, Madagascan, isn't it? Yes. I'm pretty sure every single one is over there. Just checking. Yes. And it's got a hilarious nose. Why is it nocturnal? What's it doing differently? I don't know. I didn't. I didn't check beyond uh, it being a fun fact of being the only one that is. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty mad. Well, um, I've not done well in this chameleon quiz, but you know, live and learn. Well, it just give you something to strive for next week when we open it up to all lizard kind. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> oh dear. Okay. Well, um, yeah. I think you know, room for improvement stuff to learn so now i've just got to learn about all the lizards in the world before our next podcast yeah but you know to be fair i'm not going to be horrible and ask you like what's the smallest skink species i mean i'm not a monster yeah i wouldn't know i'm gonna keep it quite general (laughs) (laughs) so brachysia micra is the smallest chameleon in the world well it's it's the one that has the smaller smallest maximum svl okay Mm -hmm. mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah, that was the metric I was using just because it was convenient to work with. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Sounds like you've got a nice comedian data set there. <laughs> oh, I have got... I'll, I'll tell people the data set I have because it's... It, I mean, I'll talk about it more in a couple of weeks' time because it's it bears double mentioning. But it's uh, by Mary. Uh, came out a couple of months ago. And basically, it's a data set of... 6,657 lizard species. Um, and it's awesome. Sweet. That's absolutely, yeah. that's really cool. Um, yeah, well, yeah, I'm looking forward to more quizzes. Maybe I'll do better next time. Maybe I'll quiz you. <laughs> Maybe I'll bring the quiz to you. See how you get on. Oh. But I'll oh. be kind. I'll be kind and ask you about snakes so you might know the answers. <laughs> <laughs> I can certainly guess. <laughs> Um, yeah, okay, so, hey, so, um, should we, should we talk about what we're going to talk about? We're going to talk about African chameleons, right? Um, yes. Principally, well, it's not even fair to say just Eastern Africa, mostly Eastern Africa, but then also some Southern Africa as well. Um, mm. Yeah, we had a hard time finding multiple papers that were to do with chameleon kind the of... The same species. Well... Yeah, the... or similar species even actually, but it, there was a lot of Jackson's chameleons invasive papers. Yeah, well, it seemed to be that there was more about invasive chameleons than there is about native chameleons, which is all good and well. But we kind of didn't want to talk about invasive species this episode um, because it, yeah. yeah, after doing it so recently with the yeah. pythons and stuff, yeah. yeah, we've been hammering it a lot. So we thought we'd try and find some ecological or natural history papers on chameleons, um, but it proved really difficult, uh, as evidenced by the fact that one of the papers we're discussing is actually from all the way back in 2012. Um, but nevertheless, mm. I think they're both interesting. So 
and they both talk about cool species, one of which is close to my heart. So, um, yeah, I think I think we managed to uh, scrape together something worthwhile. Yeah, so the first one, I'm presuming that will be the first one as I'm saying it, uh, Rini Yi Lossos and Whiting, published in 2012 in um, Breviora. Uh, Ecology of the Flat-Necked Chameleon, uh, Chameleo Delepis in Southern Africa. Right on. Okay. It's interesting yeah. to hear you say this is the first paper, because I was anticipating this being the second paper. Ah, oh, well, why would you <laughs> do a paper that was published after the first paper? I didn't think it was chronological order. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know. I, I was under the assumption that perhaps one paper would inform the second paper. And if you're doing that, you'd go chronological, because it's impossible for the new paper to inform the old paper unless they had some sort of time machine. Okay. I take your point. Um, that's cool. <laughs> I can just adapt. I can adapt. I'm adaptable. So yeah, yeah it's not a big deal. Um, cool. Yeah. So this was a paper, as the title suggests, investigating what goes on with flat-necked chameleons. Um, so they're called flat-necked chameleons. <laughs> yeah. What are you chuckling at? <laughs> just what's, go- what's going on? We don't what's, know. That's yeah. It's another one of those like... What do you mean we don't know what's going on with chameleons? They're unbelievably charismatic and everybody loves them. I know, right? It's bizarre. We know nothing about them virtually. I mean, that's actually, yeah. no, that's doing a disservice to the chameleon researchers. Like, we know increasingly more about them, but like, relative to how many species are like virtually mythical in their nature compared to how many we actually have like good data on even basic aspects of their ecology, it's heavily weighted to mystery. Yeah, it tends to be more morphological focused with a lot of chameleons, doesn't it? You know, mechanisms and how do their eyes work? What's going on with that crazy tongue? What's up with their weird feet? Yeah. Stuff like that. And that's yeah. about natural history and their lives. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. That's very, very true. Um, so, yeah, for this one, we're talking about the flat-necked chameleon, um, which is so named because it has these, they're called occipital lobes, and they're like little lumps behind its head towards its back. Um, basically where the skull ends just behind there's these two flaps of skin and they can supposedly lift them up and try and look threatening and um, yeah that's that's where they get the name the flap-necked chameleon and this is a species which is associated with low elevations and kind of savannah woodland um, so you know you'll find this chameleon alongside charismatic megafauna just hanging in the bushes there and uh, yeah they've got a really broad range so the Camellio delepis, as it's known at the moment, covers the entire bottom half of the continent of Africa virtually. So the vast majority of sub-Saharan Africa, excluding the far southeastern tip of the continent. Um, and this species is split into eight subspecies. So, um, yeah, they're really widely spread. There's eight subspecies. And actually, their status as one species has been drawn into question very recently. And um, there's probably a high likelihood that it's going to be split up at some point in the relatively near future. There was a paper by Maynatal in 2018. Did you read this one? No, I didn't. No. But as soon as you say wide distribution, you know, five plus subspecies, you're going to be like, oh, someone's, someone's coming in with some scissors right there. <laughs> yeah, that's they're, literally They're not it. getting away. <laughs> yeah, so there was a paper this year by Maynatal, and um, they only studied two different populations in south south africa but they were like different enough to warrant i mean they only used i think it was um two mitochondrial genes so they weren't confident enough to actually split them but they said you know our our data suggests that these will be split in the future so um yeah they're 
there at the moment there are species. So this paper is looking at individuals from quite a broad variety of places, um, like numerous countries. Um, where were they? Oh yeah, so this was specimens from Botswana, Mozambique, Namibia, South Africa, and Zimbabwe. So. You know, a fair few countries, but even that only represents a relatively small southern portion of their range. Um, so they tried to kind of stick to ones which were in a, a local area, probably in anticipation of the fact that they were likely to be split in the future. And obviously, if you studied a species across a massive range that ends up getting split up, that kind of dilutes how useful the information you've gleaned is. Um, it, yeah, it depends. If you've got enough samples everywhere then it can just be sort of split up as long as there's good sort of locality data on what was discovered in each location. But that's a lot of work. <laughs> that's a whole that's a whole operation, isn't it? Like trying to cover that entire range, basically yeah. half of Africa. That's yeah, good luck. Yeah. So uh so I mean it's quite an attractive chameleon. I like them. They're not my favourite. Um but What's your favourite chameleon? Um my favourite chameleon. I like some of the Bradipodian species. Yeah, I don't have like an immediate favourite. I just know that these aren't it. There's another one called... Um, <laughs> there's one with like amazing eyeshadow. Got it here in my list of favourite... Ah, yeah, okay. So, I like Troceros Honolai because I saw one on Mount Kenya and it was awesome. Um, and they've got mm. a really big cask. They're quite impressive. I like Stemfeldi as well. They're awesome. Another one in Troceros. Yeah, there's quite a lot that I like, but um, I, I think I prefer Montane chameleons. I just think they've got a little bit more about them. But there again, the dwarf chameleons from South Africa are also oh, really cool. They're pretty awesome. Yeah. So there's one Tiny called Tiny Little Leaflet of Livers. Yeah. Well, the bra- not 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 the um, Bradipodian. I think they're generally like sort of grass and shrub livers. But there's one called Bradipodium pumulum, which is really cool. Yeah. So, what's your favourite chameleon? Um, I'd have to go with. Fusifer varicosus. Oh, yeah? Mainly because it's the only species of chameleon that I've seen in the wild. Okay. And he's just a spiky boy from Madagascar. Oh, yeah. Sort of cool grey top with a sort of warmer, greener belly. But the one I saw was... I saw a couple. But the one that I remember most distinctly was this sort of beautiful grey, but had it's got almost sort of purpley bluish in the grey. It was really, really stunning. Now you've got me thinking about chameleons. I have a couple of other favourites as well, actually. I like first of a minor. Have you seen that one? No, don't think so. The females go like this crazy black and white colour. Um, oh, wow. Oh, just... Yeah, all right. They're great. <laughs> yeah, they're absolutely crazy. Um, yeah, I think it's the females that go that colour anyway. Yeah, call it the lesser chameleon, which is well unfair, because I think they're, they're pretty major. Um but anyway, we digress away from the main point. What were we even talking about? We were talking about um, we we're talking about chameleon uh, delepis. chameleons. <laughs> yeah, and you said um, they look all right, and then we went off <laughs> on a yeah, favorite well, chameleon tangent. But we should describe what we're talking about. So it's just a sort of um, quite a large chameleon, um, not like as large as Ustelet's chameleon, but big. Yeah, what's the sort of average F- SVL? We're talking males. Uh, 120 millimeters SVL and females 160 millimeters SVL. Yeah, so, so that's pretty beefy. Yeah, it's a pretty decent sized lizard. And they're like, well, for the most part, they're bright green. Sometimes they have kind of like dappled markings on them with um, a white stripe 
along the belly and then a couple of white marks higher up on the body. And they have like a a white extension of the mouth sometimes as well. They're quite a sort of classic chameleon, really. Yeah, yeah. they're like, yeah, they're sort of like the, the base palette for a chameleon. If you were to just default imagine, chameleon. yeah, I would say they are the vanilla def- chameleon. Yeah, vanilla. Yeah, you know they're all they're not that exciting. They're widely spread savanna chameleons, you know. But um, no, that's doing them a disservice. They're obviously really cool. Um, but yeah, so obviously this paper was looking at the ecology of this species. Um, so before we get into that, I guess it would be good to kind of get an understanding of what we knew about them before. Um, mm. So there was a lot of reports that females were bigger than males, but they weren't sort of quantified. Um, and also, you know, this is a, this species, there's YouTube videos of them in battle against um, black mambas, which is quite cool. I'm um, sorry, what? Yeah, there's videos on YouTube of... Uh, what it. wins? Um, it's a really long, protracted fight. I'll put the video in the show notes. Um, yes, do it. I think that's a black mamba there. Yeah, or is it a... Uh, boom slang yeah it's a boom slang um yeah so there's basically this chameleon and it's like puffing itself up doing battle against the boom slang i'll put it in the notes and then you can watch it later but um yeah the chameleon does pretty well it holds off the boom slang for quite a while but then i think in the end it does actually get you don't necessarily see it oh no the snake leaves the snake leaves and then yeah so the chameleon actually does win classic snake (laughs) yeah snake cowardly um, the chameleon seems to win, but whether or not the snake then would come back later and track down the chameleon, who knows? Uh, <laughs> really, right. everybody lost. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the chameleon just died and the snake went hungry. Um, but yeah, <laughs> the other thing was that um, Hebrard and Madsen published a paper in 1984, and they were talking about how during the dry season, um, the male flatnet chameleons perch in kind of brown defoliated shrubs, while females perch in really nice lush green shrubs. And um, this is kind of like habitat, like they're, well, they're niche partitioning really during the dry season. And um, the males seem to be more brown in colour during this time. So there's a suggestion that, well, the, either the males go brown and then this, they split the habitat up this way or the, the males get relegated to these brown things and have to have to match the kind of less foliated. Make do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but that's quite interesting observation or study at least about their um, about their ecology. So they do kind of have this propensity for color change. And actually, that's one of the um, well, that paper is large a large reason that we were keen to do my master's project on them, which was trying to see if they could change color because obviously it would seem as though the males were changing color at least for part of the year. But then you get into whether or not you know there's two kind of broad. We've talked about this on the podcast in the past. There's two broad types so. of color change. Um, one being, um, one being like short term, um, what they, they call it, uh, I've forgotten now. I should have prepared for this. Yeah. I've, it's slipped my mind as well. There's morphological and, and physiological. Physiological. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, right. One's long term, one's short, but which yeah. one's which I, so, so physiological is the short term where it happens like, you know, not instantaneously, but over a matter of minutes or hours where the animals kind of, you know. Either it's controlled by some kind of endocrine function or something like that, or temperature, where it's changing in a, in a very short period. And then there's morphological, which occurs over a much longer period. Um, so it might be that this colour change of the males was morphological and uh, not physiological. But um, yeah, it's interesting nonetheless, and that was one of the reasons we thought to study their colour change. But yeah, aside from the fact that their males can change colour at part of the year, despite the fact they're really widespread, as you've said, they were still a bit of a mystery. 
And so... Um, yeah. Yeah, it just felt like there was a lot of... Uh, I don't want to say hearsay, that's, that's underplaying it, but a lot of... Yeah, we sort of know what's going on, but no one's put numbers to it. No one's explicitly stated these things and put it in a paper in a way that people are actually going to find it, read it, see the methods and be like, okay, these are the results we're actually got as opposed to, yeah, yeah, they eat bugs. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because there's also this, um, one of the things I thought was quite interesting in general with chameleons is they are built to be, or, you know, look to be ambush predators, right? They've got a setup that potentially be quite cryptic, wait for something to go by, you've got crazy fast tongue to deal with it, and sort of geared towards being quite, yeah, quite ambush. But really, a whole bunch of species are more... What do they? Do? What's the term they use? Roaming. Yeah, cruise, Roaming cruise, foragers? cruise foragers. Cruise foraging. Yeah, and that sort of stuff that I think is really important that people basically go out and investigate and actually work with, because otherwise you're going to be thinking that these these animals behave one way based on some sort of morphological assumptions, when really, you know, their life histories are, are very different. I think that's really important. I really like that. Yeah, yeah, it is cool. Yeah, it is it is cruise foraging is an interesting kind of body plan, isn't it? Because they're not moving all the time and they're not moving a lot, but they're they're like kind of like every now and again they're just kind of moving a little bit, walking a little way, keeping their eyes peeled. They're sort of yeah. always on the go, but in a really sort of understated way. <laughs> <laughs> understated. Yeah. Um. So yeah, like at least this po- this paper they were looking at um southern populations of Camino de Lepis and trying to work out well just trying to generally find out about their reproduction you know basic facts about that uh, sexual dimorphism and like you say what they're eating and um, they did this using museum specimens so they were you know going into the museum getting the pickled specimens out dissecting them having a look through seeing what they were eating not the most glamorous Chuck work. Up, measure them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, not the most glamorous work, but um, they did a whole bunch. How many chameleons did they even do? Two hundred and something. Yeah. Uh, Two hundred and fifty-one, I think, because we got two hundred and six that had stomach contents, an additional forty-five that did not. Yeah, that sounds about right. And um, yeah, I mean, they got some good results out of it. They found that the females were larger. Um, you said earlier on the sizes, uh, both in SVL and pelvic width. And um, the bigger females had more eggs, which is interesting. An average of yes, 44. Yes, there was a connection there. Yeah. Which, that is interesting. Because this actually ties into why this dimorphism might exist to begin with, right? Yes, it does. Because... One of the ideas is that there is some sort of fecundity selection acting on these chameleons. So basically, ones that can have more offspring have a better chance of their genes being passed on. So this is pressure to more offspring, improve that chance, and so on and so forth, and driving a larger female body to produce larger eggs, or at least so that correlation they found between size and eggs seems to suggest that that's, uh, that that's what's driving it, right? Yeah, they're producing more eggs, not necessarily larger eggs. Yes. No, well, not larger eggs, wasn't it? It was yeah. only more eggs. Yeah. 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 Which is... Yeah. So you say it's interesting. The the highest clutch they found was 74 eggs, which... 74 is pretty good. 
That's, that's good, a lot of eggs. That's like reticulated python eggs numbers. That's but an insane amount. I ask you, which chameleon has the largest clutch size? <laughs> you came out <laughs> left field there, Ben. Um, <laughs> the largest clutch size. And I, oh. You've got two options here. You can either get largest clutch found, or I've also got largest meme clutch. Is it a species which is well known? I don't know. I can tell you it's a genus that's well known. <laughs> Have you just got scientific names there? I'm afraid so. Um, although I could guess at the common name of one of them. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I can, I can. I'm going to guess Laborde's chameleon. Oh, that's a good guess with a high reproductive overtone. Yeah, one big hit. Now this one's got a really big head from the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, Yemen and Saudi Arabia. Oh, Camellia calyptratus. Yeah, absolutely spot on. Veiled chameleon. That's interesting. Clutch size of ninety-five. What? You'd think I'd have heard of that being as like they're really, really widely bred in captivity. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, gosh, can you imagine? Maybe it's having... not actually that unusual for them. I don't know. Maybe that's mate. Ninety-eight yeah. baby chameleons to think of sounds like God. That sounds like purgatory. <laughs> <laughs> Chaos and the the other one with which has the highest mean in the paper uh-huh. um, has a really really small head and is found in West Africa in Senegal Mali Nigeria and Cameroon. Okay, I'm gonna guess it. Camellia senegalensis. <laughs> Spot on. Yay. Okay, given ridiculously it can't be anything else clues, I can get them right. <laughs> yeah, and so they have an average clutch size of 52, and that's. A, yeah, sorry, mean clutch size. That's, Blimey! That's a lot of baby chameleons every single time. <laughs> that is crazy. They must lay tiny, tiny little eggs. Who knows? Well, Who knows? They must be like little tiny marbles. <laughs> Mental. Well, that's really shaking me. Yeah, jeez. Anyway, that puts... <laughs> Where I mean, were we? Jeez, <laughs> that puts, the, that puts uh, Camellia Delepis in perspective, doesn't it? 74, that's nothing. Well, it does. Um, that's that's what you know. That's actually why I originally looked up some of that stuff. Was okay. Is that crazy for chameleons? I mean, yeah, we're like, wow, seventy-four eggs. You, you know, you catch fish over there, like seventy-four eggs. <laughs> Try one million eggs. <laughs> salmon, <laughs> salmon in the backfield, just chuckling away to itself. <laughs> See my milt. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have telescopic eyes, though, does it? Yeah, no, they don't. They have no none of the features that make chameleons cool. Yeah. They don't even have legs. Swim on. Swim on. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, in terms of their diet, um, they were eating Bunks. mostly orthopterans. Yeah. So, crickets, grasshoppers, locusts. And then behind them, it was coleopterans, which I've probably mispronounced. Sorry, beetle lovers, but that's beetles. So, um, yeah, yeah. They're, they're bug eaters. And then there was that one that ate a gecko. That's just outrageous. <laughs> That's horrible, horrible things you've done to have eaten a gecko. Yeah. And then apparently... And another one ate a skink. Yeah, I mean... So, I mean... They're out of control. They Apparently in Colin Tilbury's Atlas of African Chameleons, there's a record of a Camellia dilepis eating another Camellia dilepis, but um, that book's... Oh, my days. Yeah, actually, they've just re-released that book, uh, second edition, and I want to get it, because the old edition was like a thousand pounds. So, yeah, probably worth getting the new one while it's a hundred. Unless they printed more, of course. <laughs> oh, what a bargain. 
I know, yeah, a hundred pounds for a book, but but mate, I mean, what can you really put a price on photos of chameleons and chameleon information, especially when it promises to tell you about chameleons eating other chameleons? Well, I mean, I would I would say you couldn't, but they've found a way, and the price is over a hundred pounds. Actually, (laughs) actually, hang on a second. I think I might even have the scans of that book. I think I might even have the Camellia Delepis information from that book because I scanned it because Jan had a copy. Yeah, I might even actually have the access knowledge. to that information, but I the just Tilbury knowledge just completely forgotten it. Yeah, hmm. millipedes as well. They ate some millipedes, but how? Aren't millipedes poisonous? What's going on there? <laughs> yeah, that was a little bit of an odd one, wasn't it? Because they didn't really have an answer. It was either they might be resistant to whatever toxin they have, or maybe these millipedes aren't particularly toxic. <laughs> or maybe the millipede is just pulling a Brahmini blind snake and going through completely undigested. <laughs> Oh, no, that would be... They're, they're too chubby, millipedes. Yeah, yeah, that seems unlikely. And poor, also... Poor little chameleon. Chameleons, they're chompers as well. When they get something in their mouth, they chomp yeah. it. They chomp it good. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of new information about these chameleodilepis. Um Females are bigger. They have lots of eggs. They eat bugs. The There doesn't seem to be a lot of... <laughs> when, when you say it like that, it makes it sound like... They're not particularly surprising results, but I mean, it really does <laughs> beg the question why the, you, it, it, you need this stuff written down. <laughs> yeah, you do, and and documented in a in a quantitative podcast. Fashion. Yeah, podcast. One thousand percent. Yeah, no, hundred percent. Like, yeah, it's like you say, it's good baseline stuff. I cited this paper in my masters. Critical baseline stuff. Mm. Hopefully, like, we'll be actually citing critical. It. Yeah, hopefully, we'll be citing it when the paper eventually comes out. Oh, yeah. How long have you been working on that one? Well, <laughs> cumulative hours, I don't know, but it's been pretty intermittent over the last three years. <laughs> oh, it's one of those papers. But it's near the top of the pile again now, so it's coming out. Sweet. Yeah. yeah. I look forward to reading it. Alexia's like Alexia Fish, who I worked with on it. She's all over it at the moment, so we're, we're getting there. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Thank God she is, because, yeah. Well, I would have been eventually, I like to think. But anyway, enough about that. <laughs> um, so, let's move on to the second paper, shall we? A different kind of chameleon. Yeah. Uh, so this one is by Hughes, Blackburn, Wilbur and Behangana in 2018. New distribution records, observations on natural history and notes on reproduction of the poorly known Sudanese unicorn chameleon. Uh, which is Triceros kinerostratus from Uganda, Africa. And this was published in Amphibian and Reptile Conservation, an excellent open access conservation-focused journal, not to be confused with the UK conservation NGO of the same name. Yes, and the only downside of it is they appear not to have DOIs. Oh, really? Well, not that I can find. No DOI? Which is a little bit odd, isn't it? Not on the PDF, anyway. What? Um, what was I going to say? I was going to say, what's your opinion of animals being named after fictional animals? Um, hmm. Hmm. Where do I feel about that? No, I think I think that's okay. Because, um, you know, you're not doing a disservice to an actual animal. Fictional animals are generally held in pretty high regard. Um, especially a unicorn. I mean, come on. <laughs> unicorns are magical so 
Yeah, I think it's actually a compliment rather than a cheap, you know, usually it's like, you know, leopard tortoise. Oh, let's name it that because it looks vaguely like a leopard. Give me a break. Like that thing's an animal in its own right. Whereas a unicorn, you can only think of a unicorn in like a fanciful imaginary way. So I think it's okay. Okay. What do you think? Yeah. Um, I think I'm okay with it as well. <laughs> Not as okay as me though. I think I actually love well, it. You, you, I think unicorn gets away with it because unicorn actually means something. If if unicorn as mm. a fictional creature didn't exist, unicorn would still make sense, right? That's like true. The, the name means what it means. Mm. That's a very very well made point. It's funny that <laughs> it's kind of it ended with the sentence. It means what it means. Yeah, but it means what it means. Like, wow, it really does mean. You know when it just means what it means, and it doesn't mean other stuff. You know, yeah, Damn. no, well put, eloquent. I like that. So what I find funny about this is that you're mocking it, me. I'm not. I don't know anymore. So uh, they called it the unicorn chameleon, but it's in the genus Troceros, which means three horned. What's going on there? Come on, taxonomists. Whoa. That's brilliant. Yeah. So oh, that, take that. What, you're going to learn your chameleon names? No, you're not. Yeah. I remember having a conversation um, when I was like brand new to chameleons. And then so someone it said, should be... So someone goes to me, I love oh... How, I love how silly that is. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Because I remember vividly, someone was like, oh, so it's called, you know, like Troceros. I can't think what it was now. It was like... Uh, I don't know, one of the ones with no horns. And I was like, oh, has it got three horns? And they were like, no, it's got no horns, idiot. And I was like, what? Why is it in the genus Trotterus? Like, obviously, like, Jackson's chameleons have got three horns. Maybe that's one. I don't know yeah. which the first one to be described was. There's a couple, uh, there's, there may be others, I'm not sure. I, I lose track of how many, who's got how many horns, but, yeah. Do we, uh, do we have a translation for uh, Connie Rostratus? Yeah, I do. It means um, conical rostrum. It's got one horn. Oh, okay. So the, so the rostral scale is a little tiny. I mean, the horn on this chameleon is the most underwhelming thing ever. It's like... Right, don't let them hear you say that. Uh, sorry. Sorry, chameleon. I didn't mean it, all right? Don't... You know, chameleons aren't insecure, you know? They're pretty They're pretty secure in themselves, so I think I can say that. Yeah. But um, it looks like someone's sharpened a pencil all the way right down to the end, and then that's it. That's the horn. <laughs> no, there was and more. Stuck it, on a, yeah. stuck it on a chameleon. Yeah, it's literally just like a oh, tiny yes. little nubbin of a horn. Conibrostratus. And, Perfect. And the females don't really even have a horn. They have like a teeny, teeny, tiny lump, um, which is still enough to distinguish them from one of their close relatives, which is um, Troceros botaniatus, which they look a lot like, which is the side-striped chameleon. Yeah. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about a chameleon that's about 70 millimetres SVL. Male's a little bit smaller, like 65, 66 sort of area. Uh, brown, chameleon shaped. <laughs> uh, with some of them having sort of two nice white stripes along them, some, some nice sort of dappling. Yeah, occasional orange spots. Yeah. Yeah, I think the ones in Kenya... Um... The ones in Kenya are like orangey in colour, apparently. Like more so than these appear to be in the photos. Yeah, just looking at the sort of photos, relatively, I was going to say variable, but actually, I suppose they can change colour, so it's a little bit of a duff. Uh, yeah, I mean, the one thing to judge by, isn't it? The ones from the northern forests are less interesting in coloration than the ones from the southern forests, I would say. But then again, that's only three individuals of each sex. So. 12 in total and like you say yeah they're really variable so it could just be that they were fired up on fired up or not fired up 
Um, so let's move on. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, living they're quite... in the mountains of Kenya. No, Uganda. Well, and Kenya though. And this was they the are point. found in Kenya. Was that they weren't on the Ugandan list of species until this paper showed that they were in what six different protected areas, right? That's right. Yeah. So they were from. So this is a case of. If you don't know where they are, you don't know where to protect them. And if they're not protected, then they are vulnerable to, uh, well, exploitation without any sort of limits. That's right. So yeah. an important paper in a lot of ways. Hmm. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, yeah, so they were found in Uganda and also Kenya. And then, um, uh, sorry, not Uganda. Not Uganda at all. I'm thinking of the next one. These ones were found in Sudan and Kenya. Um but then they got found in Uganda subsequently during this paper. Uh, yes. <laughs> God, Jesus, confusing. Anyway, so, um, yeah, funnily enough, I've got Jan Stapala's book, the one that is referenced heavily throughout this. And um, in it, he talks about finding them on the kind of like edges of agricultural fields. Um, mm. And then he also alludes to the fact that there's this big gap in their range where... You know, you've got Sudan up here and then Kenya over to the east. And then in between is Uganda with its own mountains. And um, yeah, that's seemingly what prompted, or at least if it didn't prompt the search, it was the conclusion of the search when they looked at all these Ugandan, they call them um, central forest reserves. And uh, yeah, all six of them were found to contain this um, Truceris quinirostratus. Yeah. I just want to say, we haven't mentioned this. It was discovered in Sudan, which is why it's called the Sudanese Unicorn Chameleon. But actually, now we realise that it's not just found in Sudan. It's also found in Kenya and Uganda. But again, yeah. this is another Assuming, one. of course, it is all one consistent species. That's the other trick, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. Unless it could just be that they're cryptic species. Because they do... One of their closing statements is whether the isolation of these uh, Ugandan populations could be some some sort of cryptic species. It's, it's possible, isn't it? It's always possible. Yeah, very much so. But um, this one is another one which is a bit of a mystery to scientists, isn't it? Um, very little was known of its behaviour or ecology, as we have loads of chameleon species. Um, there's 50 species of chameleon in East Africa, um, out of like about 190 total chameleon species. And as we said before, um, when we were talking about the flat-necked chameleon, most of them are pretty mysterious. Um... Uh, an example is this species, the uh, unicorn chameleon. No one was even sure if it laid eggs or gave birth to live young, although it was suspected to be alive bearing because um, it's a montane chameleon that lives at high altitude. So generally they are live bearing because it's hard to find oviposition sites. Mm. And also it's easier to thermoregulate using a body than it is to just kind of lay the eggs and hope. Um, and as we said earlier, it's related to um, Bataniatus, which is a live bearing chameleon. Um, but yeah it's like that just goes to show how much of a mystery it was there was no kind of confirmed evidence that it was uh, not egg laying prior to this no no not at all I've actually seen a um, Trocerus botaniatus in the wild that's pretty sweet man it was awesome yeah when we were on was um, it in Uganda no it was in Kenya near Lake Naivasha yeah we went there on a field trip uh, when I was doing my masters and um, yeah it was just on a tree next to the path and we were walking down this little hill towards the lake. Um, yeah, it was just did a really it, cool little chameleon. Do its threatening display of opening its mouth. Do you know, it didn't really do a lot. Um, 
No, it was pretty chill. Um, I think, yeah, I can't even remember if anyone picked it up or whether we just looked at it. But um, well, I say that because they chat a little bit about oh the gape. catching these chameleons and the gape. But more interesting than the gape, okay, things gape, make themselves look bigger. Look at my mouth, uh, scary. But what's also cool is they've got these little pouches on the sides of their their mouths, which they're supposedly storing partially digested food in. And when they sort of get grabbed, they can fling their heads around and sort of kick up this this nasty uh, partially digested food that apparently smells horrible. And they were saying that it would get on people's hands and stay there for like 24 hours with this horrible smell from partially digested chameleon food yeah they didn't liken it to any particular smell though which i was quite disappointed about yes that would have been nice (laughs) (laughs) but i followed up on the the citation they have there the the priest et al 2016 paper which is going back to jackson's chameleons unfortunately of all of all things because of the invasive things we couldn't completely avoid doing the jackson's chameleons but they had a completely counter um hypothesis for why the chameleons had it and in Jackson's it looked to be or at least they were suggesting it was a prey luring mechanism basically the in the study they pull it out of the chameleon get it already and they test whether flies go towards it or not and um, compare it to other insect pheromones that's crazy and it works basically they found yeah but yeah flies preferred to go towards it than away from it more often so, like, okay, flies seem to be intrigued, at least they're coming closer. So it is acting as some sort of lure. And some of the compounds are the same as found in other insect pheromones, from beetles to honeybees to moths. So there's definitely something going on there with what pheromones are existing in it and how the flies are reacting in terms of Jackson's. Now, whether our unicorn chameleons are using it in a similar way i don't know maybe for them it's just defense it, it might be a sort of dual purpose sort of thing really cool but pretty remarkable ah it's man it's, it's not surprising if you mash up a beetle you get a load of beetle pheromones but nevertheless the fact that it has that but if they're effect... acting if they're acting as a lure then i don't know it's, it's all a question of cost of of having this but not using it defensively versus cost of having it but using it as a lure and the balance between those two things it might just be dual purpose Mm. with two selective pressures pushing it to exist it's really cool though i'd not heard of that before this no and i mean what they mention in the paper is you don't get too many instances of vertebrates with such a alluring uh sort of mechanism no like that i mean you think you think of flowers and plants using it frequently for insects but it's a little bit less common in vertebrates and you know they sort of mention a few other lizard species that might have some similar sort of things going on but uh, i don't think it's something that i've really read about in any detail before no uh, well the um to think about there was the chemical lures by the uh, puff adders wasn't there sorry maybe i'm thinking of um was there something to do with their predators they were hiding themselves chemical camouflage could be chemical camouflage chemical crypsis in the puff adder yeah that was it okay sorry yeah so they weren't luring prey they were they were the prey and they were hiding from yeah they were hiding from their uh which admittedly is pretty awesome (laughs) yeah very cool yeah so they're just they don't smell of anything (laughs) 
<laughs> or they smell of something that no one's interested in. Yeah. So yeah, they went to they did a load of field work in six protected areas in Uganda in over four months between 2015 and 2016. They were doing visual searches, asking people if they could help them find chameleons. Um, we talked about this on the podcast before, but it's easier to find chameleons at night. Um, they kind of perch at the end of branches away from predators and they kind of just chill there and go to sleep and so if you've got a torch at night they're relatively easy to spot as compared to the daytime when they're you know much much harder to see they're being cryptic sneaky hiding in the bushes yeah much easier to find and uh, they mentioned that the chameleons actually surprisingly preferred because the original description suggested they liked forested areas but then um this paper, they actually found them easier to find in agricultural areas, and so too did Jan Stapala in his book, um, who's a friend of mine, I mentioned him earlier on, they also found uh, the same thing um, when they were doing surveys for the Canaristratus in Kenya. They were finding them in agricultural mm. areas. Yeah, the, the authors of this paper, though, they do suggest that, you know, it could be down to exactly how easy but they no are to detectability. spot. detectability. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, Without accounting for that, it's difficult to work with it. But no, yeah. especially if they're tall trees, it could just be that they're high up in the trees. You don't know. But, you know, it seems certainly they are at least tolerant of um, disturbed habitat. Again, it's another good... It's nice having these sort of good story... Uh, good story. Good news sort of stories with, hey, this one seems pretty resistant to slash and burn agriculture. Probably not a massive conservation concern in terms of habitat loss because they've got that additional flexibility. It's a good sign. Um, they did draw attention to illegal pet trade as being a potential. Yeah, just before uh, we get onto that conservation, that's a whole wormhole. Um, these chameleons, yeah. they did find out that they were viviparous because I talked about that earlier on. They are giving birth to live young, as per suspected. Um, they dissected one female, and she had late-term embryos past where they would have been laid had they been um, like egg laying. And also, yes. um, yeah, they, they were, you know, they were getting to be proper looking chameleons rather than just, you know, amorphous embryos and they didn't have a shell around them. Um, and she only contained 12, so a lot less crazier number than the Camellia Delepis and other chameleons that we were, have been talking about. Um, <laughs> a little bit more sensible. Yeah. But yeah, yeah you're right. Um, the conservation section you were saying about the, uh, the pet trade. Which, yeah, I brought up earlier how important it is to know where these species are so you can set up some sort of regulation to get quotas or not as in allowing export or not you know at least get a handle on what's going on if you've got no idea of how many there are then usually that means people can export as much as they want and next thing you know you're out of chameleons Mm. and it was a little bit uh worrying I, i suppose it's worrying i don't know but um the number they quoted for was it in a 2014 CITES report, was it? Um, no, sorry, since 2000. So when was this published? 2018. So in the past 18 years, 50,000 live chameleons have been exported from Uganda. Yeah, that's a lot. Uh, those numbers just seem insane to me. They are a lot. But then again, you think about the numbers of reptiles coming out of Madagascar, and that's loose change for that, isn't it? Remember <laughs> it the numbers of like Euro- shocking. <laughs> Europlatus and things was 500,000. Yeah, yeah, no, that is the case. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if Kenya exports its own chameleons. It's a it's a difficult situation. Um, I I was reading about uh, there is actually a farm, or there's multiple farms in Kenya and Tanzania that farm chameleons. 
Um, so, you know. Do they actually farm them or have we got a Burmese python situation on our hands again? No, they actually are like registered, legit farming operations. Um, and they export. <laughs> those, those other ones were registered and legit in terms of they had the certificates to get them out of the country. Oh, no, yeah. Fine. They go they go to one of these farms on the um, Exeter field trip. And okay. it's like, you know, they're breeding chameleons there. <laughs> You can see it practically actually occurring yeah, and working. They're, they're and giving birth. physiologically possible to produce the number of chameleons they're exporting. Yeah, because the way they do it is um, they basically put out loads of like fruit and things like that and attract bugs. And then they just have loads of trees in which the chameleons live in these like, you know, fenced areas with like a... Uh, a netting around and um yeah the bugs come and eat the fruit the chameleons eat the bugs and then they just live in there happily breed and then the babies get exported apparently a hundred a month from this one place so there is possible a month. it is possible uh, for, for there to be so what we're we looking at 1200 a year times by 18 would give us 21,600 mm-hmm. presuming they all survive and that's only one species as that's just jackson's chameleons yeah, that makes me feel a little bit better about that 50,000 number. Yeah, so I think um, the re- really the message is that if you really feel that you have to have a canerostratus, just like hold off until something's going on and they're not just being taken from the wild without any idea of what they are or how many there mm. are. And yeah, like you say, there was 100 exported illegally before it was even known by science to be in Uganda. So, yeah. Yeah, well, that's that's what's worrying is if you... if people don't know what's there to begin with then things are going undocumented and you don't know what the impact is yeah so. yeah so um just quickly before we move on to the species of the bye week i alluded earlier on to um jan stapala's book it's called mountain dragons in search of chameleons in the highlands of kenya and um it's awesome so consider picking up a copy it's like a photographic reference book of uh kenyan chameleons and like a story of Jan doing his PhD research. He was one of my um, supervisors at Exeter when I was working with chameleons. And I hadn't dug it out for like a year, but it's absolutely fantastic. You, no, you have dug it out. You dug it out like relatively recently to show me. That was a year ago, mate. Okay. It was a year <laughs> ago, but that, <laughs> I remember seeing it. It is an awesome book. Yeah, it's really, really cool. So it was nice to be able God, to... That re- was a year ago. Yeah, I know, man. So that was... Um, yeah, that was a, um, yeah, I mean, I showed it to you, it's banging. So, um, yeah, have a look, check it out. Uh, and it was nice to be able to refer to that in reading for this podcast, looking at all the pretty pictures. Um, but yeah, should we move on? I reckon it's time. Should we go on to the Species yeah, of the bye yeah. week Oh, yes. Yeah. Species of the bye week Got to. Cool. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be an episode without Species of the bye week So we have a paper published in Acta Herpetologica, another actually another open access journal that's quite fun. Menegon, Loder, Davenport, Hal, uh, Tilbury, Matrika, and Tolly published 2015. So not super new as we usually try and do, but we wanted a cool species of chameleon. A new species of chameleon highlights the biological affinities between the Southern Highlands and Eastern Arc Mountains of Tanzania. So not just a new species, but a new species that has some cool implications. 
Indeed. Yeah, it is cool. So like you say, this time we're in Tanzania, which is to the south of Uganda and Kenya. So we haven't come a million miles since we were talking about the um, the work in Uganda on the unicorn chameleon. But um, yeah, Tanzania, just like Kenya and Uganda increasingly, is famous for having like incredibly diverse mountainous regions. Um, the Eastern Arc Mountains and the Southern Highlands are this sequence of mountainous areas which spread from Kenya all the way through uh, Tanzania and down into Malawi. And um, we've talked about these sky islands on the podcast before, the like mountainous regions where there's like really high levels of endemism, um, or at least there's a lot of endemic chameleons on these islands. And um, yeah, they're separated by savannah in between. So quite often these chameleon species end up only being found in or known from one or a few different peaks. Yeah, and this is a new chameleon from one of those peaks. And a good looking chameleon at that. We it are is. talking about one that is has a tail longer than its body. We've got so an adult <laughs> male is seventy three SVL was a holotype, I believe, and with a tail that was eighty eight on top of that. So, you know, a practically sized chameleon, I suppose, would be the way to describe it. Yeah, you know, handheld, pocket sized. Pocket chameleon. Yeah. Yes. And um yeah, I mean, how do you describe them? They're the kind of crest Green. on the back of their head is kind of quite sticky uppy. Um, <laughs> they've got a got way a better nose. horn than the unicorn chameleon. It's not really a horn, is it? It's like a extension of the nose. Um, yeah. It's like numerous scales that poke out. Uh, but yeah, it's quite cool. A um, few little blue speckles on the head, mostly green with like a brown back. And the female's much more green than the male. Paler underside, right? Yeah, that's it. A little it. bit of, I suppose, countershading in yeah. some regards. Classic countershading, I'd say, yeah. But yeah, it's a handsome beast. And um, prior to this, there were 19 species in the genus Kinyongia, which is a genus which is found in East Africa. Uh, you know, like Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, Rwanda, and then Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. Um and like I said earlier, a lot of these species have very small mountainous ranges. Kinyongia is known for that. And um, this was a genus that was actually only created in 2006. So it's still relatively new to science. Um, these, A lot of these species were known prior to that, but I think they're all in Camellio. Well, not 100%, but um, I think that's right. Um, but yeah, so they studied two different populations for this um, for this description. And uh, what's unusual about them is that they're 150 kilometers apart across the dreaded Makambako Gap, which separates the Eastern Arc Mountains from the Southern Highlands, which were previously thought to be, you know, similar in terms of their species composition and things, but biogeographically kind of importantly distinct because of this massive Makambako Gap. Um, Yeah, no chameleon will cross the gap. It's impossible. (laughs) They're little legs. They can't make it. No, 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 no. But... First of all, <laughs> news began to trickle in that animals were defying the Macambaco Gap. First of all, a shrew defied it. There's closely related populations of shrews either side. What's going on there? How can that be? Does no one respect well, shrews, the Macambaco? Shrews can just sort of crawl through the gap. <laughs> yeah, they don't have to climb over anything. Well, I think it's you more can't like stop a shrew. I think I don't know if it's necessarily like modern stuff, but it's more like historical biogeographical patterns. There were there was movement more recently than we thought. Is the impression I get. Um, but then also, after the shrew 
had the audacity to be closely related across the Macambaco gap. Then there was a murid rodent, which looks like a mouse. And um, then, even more proper of an animal, uh, a monkey called the Kippen- Kippenji monkey has populations are you on both sides. Are less of an animal than some sort of filthy primate? Uh, yeah, I am. What of it? Outrageous. Mate. Outrageous. Have you seen the Kipunji monkey? No, but have it's... you seen the mighty shrew? <laughs> Which, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> shrews are related to elephants, are they not? They're, so they could be kind of mighty. Yeah, that's my point. Not some weird monkey. What's this monkey called? And Kipunji. It's like how harshly will I judge it? You'll like it. It's like the whole the 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 face is an old man's face, and the body is the old man's beard. How do you spell K I P U N J I? K I P U N J I U N J I monkey. (laughs) 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 Oh man! Oh, fair play. They're actually quite charming. Although when they're sort of sitting on the ground, they look like a scared cat. (laughs) Ah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. Why do they stand like that? That's no way for a monkey to stand. What's that one got around its mouth as well? Yeah, I don't know. How on earth did this beast make it across yeah. the gap? I know, yeah, the Macambaco gap. If this thing can make it across, I mean, to be honest, I've lost all respect from the Macambaco gap. Um, yeah, you know, it's whatever. It's like any other gap. Um, Please mind the gap. <laughs> Please alight carefully. Um yeah, so anyway, we haven't actually said what the species is called. It's called uh, Kinyongia musai. Oh, that's probably not how you pronounce it. Musuye? Kinyongia musuye? I don't know. Um, mm, I, I think that at least one of those pronunciations might be halfway correct. Yeah. So you tried your best. And yeah. It's better than what I could have done. So. Yeah, but it's spelled M S U Y A E. And. Um, yeah, it's named after a herpetologist called Charles A. Msuya, um, who was um, a Tanzanian herpetological pioneer. Uh, he collected the first specimen and he spent his life studying Tanzanian wildlife. Yeah, it's nice for him and his family. Well, it sounds like he might be dead, but yeah. Still, it's a species named after a person, so not ideal, but what are you going to do? Yeah. At least it's a... It's cool species. Very cool species. New species, cool chameleon, and a massive, yeah. a massive, massive new disrespect of the Macambaco Gap. Um, <laughs> those are the takeaways. And of if course... If anything, it sounds like it's a Macambaco Corridor. Yeah. If anything, yeah. That's actually probably the best possible word you could use to describe it in an ecological sense. Yeah. The Macambaco Highway. For animals. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Little did we know Straight that the Macambaco... Straight into a population. <laughs> yeah. Well, I enjoy this paper a lot. Cool stuff. Um, yeah. Great to have another new species of chameleon. And an African one as well. Um, yeah. There's lots coming out of Madagascar. Um, you're obviously, you know, Mark Shirts and colleagues coming out of chameleons and various other people. But, um, yeah, it's cool to see... Uh, cool to see an African one. Very cool. Sweet. So, um, I guess that rounds off our episode on African chameleons. Um, have you got any yeah, other? Oh, I um, have run out of questions about chameleons. Thank God. Um, 
but you won't be safe in two weeks' time. It'll be easy, though. Don't well, worry. I'm not going to revise. It'll be less niche. Yeah, yeah don't, don't bother. You won't need to. Okay, we- good. You say that, but I got all the questions about chameleons wrong, except for, like, I got half a point. Oh, no, you definitely got... No, the first one was right. Okay. All right. So I Yeah, because th- it was a millimetre in it. I'm not... You know, that's... Come on. And the last couple you got right, with a little bit of help. I forgot that Brachesia as a genus even existed. <laughs> oh, well, I suppose that's a bit of a problem. But <laughs> <laughs> um, you won't forget twice now, will you? No, probably not. So, um, any other business? Um, I think we had a new... Patreon, yeah, we do. Patron... Ethan Royal. Um, so thank yes. you very much, Ethan. Massive thank you. If you're listening, very kind. Um, we really appreciate that. And um, yeah. Um, yeah, and on to other stuff. Um, we had some cool pictures from Rob Stone, who is part of um, Aurelia Python Radio's team. Um, he sent us some photos of a ring to the ceiling that was in the Cambridge Natural History Museum. That was cool. Did I forward those on to you? Sweet. You did not. No, oh, I've man. not seen these. Oh, okay, yeah. So there's like a specimen Damn. of a ring Sicilian. After we were talking about Sicilian babies eating the mother and all that other mad Sicilian stuff. Um, yeah, he sent us photo. They're big, mate. They're scary. They're big. They're I, like... wish, I wish the Natural History Museum had more of that stuff on display. It's in the I Cambridge really one. It's in the Cambridge one, not the, um, oh, not the London one. Okay. Yeah. Because I went to the London one, what, a few months ago? And... I mean, I love the Natural History Museum, I do. But I just want to be in that Darwin Centre place in the back where all the actual specimens are and you can and they let you look through the glass and you and one of the one of the windows you can see um Malagasy giant hognose snakes in, in jars yeah, and stuff. Wow. I just want look just let me in. Don't <laughs> I'm just trapped behind this piece of glass. <laughs> I can't see anything. Why? Why are the lights off? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they do have snakes there, but they're all like taxidermied ones on display are taxidermied. They look like they've Yeah, been what just... you mean that single herpetological corridor? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they look like they've so all been left in the sun. Bad taxidermy. They, oh. Anyway, so, um, yeah, thanks, Rob, for sending us those pictures. Ben, I'll send them to you. They were cool. Yes. And um, I'm going to go to the Cambridge History Museum au naturel because um, Maya's brother's there. So that'll be cool. Sweet. Jealous. Yeah, it should be wicked. Um, Nice one. Well, um, yeah, that's it, I think. Um, Nope, I think we're all good. All right, nice one. Well, um, yeah, all that remains is to say thank you for listening. You can find us on... Facebook.com slash Herp Highlights, Twitter.com slash Herp Highlights, or at Herp Highlights, I should say. Um, we're also on email, herphighlights at gmail.com. If we got anything wrong, please email us corrections. We love getting those. Um, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, and that's about it. Keep, keep us correct. Yeah, exactly. Keep us in line. And um, yeah, thanks very much for listening. Yeah, thank you for listening. Hope people are available to join us in two weeks time for news niche fun with no theme (laughs) no joined up papers just a grab bag of nonsense awesome well not nonsense actually but carefully peer-reviewed high quality scientific literature (laughs) um yeah well said all right nice one thanks (laughs) thanks